0: All right, everybody. Today's episode is sponsored by Blind Barrels, a company that offers an exclusive blind whiskey tasting experience. Bob and I tried their product in season six, and it led directly to this ad because we are such huge fans of what they are doing. If you are interested in sampling the very best in American craft whiskey, then use our code film10 at their checkout for 10% off a yearly or quarterly subscription or even off a single box to try it out. And remember, if you're hunting for rare whiskeys, you can always buy the whiskey you've tried on their website, often at prices cheaper than MSRP. Check them out at blindbarrels.com and use code FILM10 for 10% off on your order. Hey, Bob, I'm over here, man.
1: Hey, man, what's going on? Dude, it has been like a month. Where have you been in my life? Dude, I have like barely come out of my house. I'm so nervous about season seven. I feel like I've just been looking at my computer. I've been looking at SEO keywords. I've been building a new website. You're I'm off having babies. Brad, what are we going to do, man? Like, what if, what if we go into season seven and we just like don't have the magic anymore?
0: I was born with the magic, baby. This is going to be the smoothest off season we've ever had. And season seven might be our greatest season. So I think you're, you're worrying about a little bit too much here. I don't know, man. I think I need a drink. What are you drinking today? Ah, dude, I am drinking some of the greatest swill
1: ever created on God's green earth. Listen, man, I think what we need to do, we just need to podcast this out. I just saw a really good movie. I want to introduce it to you for the first time, and I don't really know how else to do that except to podcast it. So, will you just, in the middle of this bar, will you do this with me right now? Let's do this. In
0: 1992, director and star Clint Eastwood
1: gave the world a morose review of the world of Western killers. In 2023, we try the first of five Buffalo Trace bourbons. The film is unforgiven. The whiskey is benchmark top floor. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast.
0: Podcast. Mm.
1: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are kicking off season number seven, Brad. shum da bum Brad, for the the people who may be joining us for the first time, can you walk us through the format of season seven a little bit? Yeah, we're going to watch movies and drink whiskey, Bob. Boom.
0: That's all you need to know. (laughs) That's pretty much it. (laughs) Uh, For those who are interested, though, we are going to be going through movies three to five at a time by specific directors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to take little mini reviews of directors, pair them up with some incredible whiskeys or in the case of the next five weeks, average whiskeys that may or may not live up to the uh, dollar value. We'll see.
1: And uh, see where, see where the, the good Lord takes us. There it is. Wow, that you really sold our podcast there, man. <laughs> Dude. Uh, you know, uh, we're just going to wing it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast. All right, Brad, uh, as you know, and as our listeners do not yet know, season seven is going to be our biggest and best season yet. We've got some great guests lined up. We have spared no expense in uh, revamping this podcast you will hear some fancy jingles that we've gotten produced for some of our Mm -hmm. segments we've got some new segments lined up as well and the first of which we're going to be calling pull up a chair and this is our segment for you film and whiskey listener we're inviting you in to our pretend bar that we've made at the beginning of this podcast the bar that exists here in bob's basement Mm. and uh, i don't have a name for this bar yet brad do you have anything in mind Names for the bar. I think Brad's
0: bar has a nice ring to it. <laughs> Brad's bar in Bob's house. In Bob's house. Brad's, Brad's bar in Bob's house. Yeah, it's, it's like
1: it's like when uh, they name the football field inside of the stadium. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like y- Safe Light Field inside of Ohio Stadium.
0: Yeah. It's obviously the best thing to do in order to make a lot
1: of money. <laughs> well, listen, if we're going to keep running with this sit at the bar bit, what we need to do is we need to say film and whiskey nation. Send us your suggestions. What should the pretend film and whiskey bar be called that Mm. we're inviting you into right now? It's an unnamed establishment with no sign outside. So enter at your own risk. But uh, (laughs) we're we're inviting you to pull up a chair alongside me and Brad as we sip on today's whiskey. Brad, tell the people about today's whiskey a little bit. If we're really going to be smart, Bob, it's going to be
0: first energy bar. (laughs) <laughs> or like the the the, the Rocket Mortgage Great. bar. We really need to sell out to this a little bit. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Man, today we are going to be drinking some benchmark top floor. So this is an eighty-six proof whiskey coming out of the Buffalo Trace distillery. Obviously, my favorite distillery in the world. Mm-hmm. And this is
1: going to set you back fifteen dollars. Wow. That is the perfect amount of dollars to spend on something. I I mean, I think there's a lot of
0: people who would disagree with you. (laughs) Uh, $15 mattress, probably not worth it. Not
1: worth it. You know, back in (laughs) season two, I think it was two or three, we did a thing called the springtime of swill. And we just drank a bunch. remember it. We just drank a bunch of really inexpensive whiskeys. And we were trying to determine. Canadian mist. Canadian mist, man. We were trying to determine, is it good or is it swill? And we're kind of doing that here. Not that I necessarily think benchmark is swill, but we're going to be doing five straight weeks of benchmark products because they've released this new line of whiskeys uh, that are all benchmark branded and have these different kind of gimmicks about them. And we're going to determine like which one is the best and are they or are they not swill. So for 15 bucks, you know, I'm I'm happy to share my whiskey when it only costs $15, Brad. It, it makes it a little bit easier <laughs> on the uh, on the old wallet. That's for sure. All right, Brad, it is time for our first standing segment of the day. It's a little segment we like to call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. So Brad Explains is America's favorite segment where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, uh, you know, we introduced these movies to you, and 98% of the time, you've not seen the movie. So That's a little I mean, uh, let's call it 90, maybe 90. I kind of want to go back and do the math. (laughs) You're going to come back, and it's going to be (laughs) 99.2. We're going to say 85. All right, we'll say 85% of the time. That's the official take of the Film and Whiskey podcast. Brad, was this your first time seeing the film Unforgiven? Yeah, it sure was, Bob. (laughs) All right, man. So you have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of this movie for our listeners so that they have an idea of what we're talking about. And go. Clint
0: Eastwood is a very old cowboy turned hog farmer whose wife passed away and he is trying to take care of his kids. A young man comes by saying that he has an opportunity for him to go kill some folks and make $1,000. Well, they they would split $1,000. Which, fun fact, is a lot of money back in uh, 1889 or whenever mm. this movie was set. So he has this opportunity to go make money. He recruits his old friend Morgan Freeman. And they go off and they find themselves in the clutches of Gene Hackman, who is an evil sheriff who rules with an iron fist. They kill the cowboys, but Morgan Freeman gets killed in the process. And so Clint goes in and just annihilates half the town's men and
1: rides off into the rain. All right, so there you go. There's the plot of Unforgiven, according to Brad. Dude, it's Now time here's for... the question. Go ahead, go ahead.
0: Now here's the question I have for you, Bob. Mm. Who is this movie for?
1: Who is this movie for?
0: Yeah, like who's, who's going to walk away from this and just be like, heck yeah. And also, like, what's the kind of person who might, Walk away from
1: this being, you know, a little less than impressed. All right. I'll give you a serious answer and a a slightly facetious answer. The serious Uh answer is anyone who doesn't like Westerns, I think would really like this movie. Not because Mm. it is like the anti-Western, like it still uses all of the formula and the conventions of a Western, but it really focuses on asking the question of, is this all worth it? What was it all for? Uh, Why do we mythologize these people? And so if, if you hate the idea of, you know, John Wayne rides in and saves the day and there's no fallout from his actions, then like this might be the movie for you. I also think do you remember in the movie Inception when Ken Watanabe's character has that whole monologue at the beginning about like to DiCaprio where he's talking about like you don't want to become an old man filled with regret. Yep. I think if you're an old man filled with regret, this is the movie for you. Like This is it, this man. Is, this is like they could have just called this movie old man filled with regret, because this is uh the theme of the film. If if it was a Japanese film, that would be like the rough translation <laughs> of the title.
0: So that's who this movie's for, Brad. Yeah, I love it, man. I, I'm excited for people who have not seen or heard of Forgi- Unforgiven to jump into
1: this because I, I will spoil my thoughts a little bit here. This is a really good movie, Bob. This was a phenomenal movie, Brad. And, you know, we we met up in person a couple weeks ago so I could meet your new baby. And we were talking about this movie and I had said, you know, I started watching it the other night. I think I'm going to have to go back and restart the whole thing because I couldn't finish it. And I hate leaving a movie unfinished. And I'd said, man, I got like a half hour in and I was so tired and I can't tell if it's just boring or if I was just sleepy. And I was really dreading going back and finishing this movie because we've only done one other Clint Eastwood directed movie on this podcast. It was Million Dollar Baby, the other film that he wins best picture for in addition to this Mm -hmm. one. And we were pretty cool on Million Dollar Baby. And so I was I was worried that this was going to have the same fate on our show and man, when I went back and watched this movie all the way through, it is staggering. And I don't know what what's the word, man. There's just such a profound. Banger. I don't know.
0: It's, it's, a, it's a banger. It's a bounce. banger,
1: but it's like it's a heavy movie, too. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's yeah. constantly making you reckon with the myths that we build up around our heroes. And it's just so much more effective at that than Million Dollar Baby was. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that when you look at the character of the kid,
0: the Schofield kid, he represents everything that you want of like a generation that mythologizes violence and, you know, being a badass and, you know, all of these things. It tries to make those things seem like the coolest thing in the world. But when you actually get down to it, killing people is really terrible Mm -hmm. it's uh it's pretty brutal yeah so i i think that he does a really incredible job of drawing out the dichotomy between what we think we are seeing when we hear about the the old old west and what actually happened
1: a hundred percent and you know it's not by accident, that it's Clint Eastwood that's doing this. This is a guy whose entire career had been built on the Western, from his time in TV to his time with Sergio Leone and his early, you know, directorial films. They're all Westerns. And you start to see as he gets into the 70s and 80s that he's making these, I don't want to call them revisionist Westerns, but they're definitely. They're getting a little bit more morally gray, and they definitely call into question some of these mythologies that we've built up about the American West and the idea of the holy good hero and the holy bad bad guy. And then it kind of all culminates here. And what I really love, you know, you were already talking about this, but one of the major themes of the movie is just the idea of what killing a person does to your soul. And there's not a lot of talk about the soul in this movie. There's definitely some, like, you know, when when Eastwood has a fever, he's having some sort of fever dream. And there's a there's a semi-spiritual element there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if we can describe it in spiritual terms, it's all about what happens to a man's soul after he kills another man. And you start yeah. to like by the time you get to the middle of this movie, Brad, every single scene is a recitation of. From different characters, points of view of one of, you know, maybe two things. And and it's the demythologizing of the American West and or what killing a person does to your soul. And it's yeah. like it never gets old. It never seems repetitive. But the theme is really hammered home. Yeah. I mean, th- just the other day, I
0: rewatched uh, Network, Sidney Lumet's masterpiece. And. this conversation makes me think about, you know, if you want to go back and listen to our episode on that, it's probably season three, I think maybe four. There's a reality where at the end of that film, uh, Max Schumacher goes to Diane and basically says, Hey, like I'm the only thing, the only thread that is keeping you attached to humanity. And if you let me go, you're just going to be, you're not even going to be a human anymore. And he leaves and she doesn't keep him. And the next scene, you see her ordering the death of the, of the human being, the man who got her the position where she's at now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there, there's just this reality where humans don't like to think about it, but our actions have consequences upon our soul Mm -hmm. and they change us. And they, They form us into a new person. And if you don't think about stuff like that, then you're going to end up like William Money, Clint Eastwood at the end of
1: Unforgiven. Well, the framing device of this movie, too, it's like a classic setup for a Western. So these two cowboys have ridden into a town and they go to the brothel. And one of the, you know, one of the hookers says something to him and he attacks her with a knife and he cuts her all up and mutilates her and essentially gets away with it. Go ahead. The uh, the opening of this movie, like I'm not a I'm not
0: a squeamish person, but I don't maybe my mind wasn't in the right place for it. Maybe I was ready for a slow build up Western. No, but the first five minutes
1: of this movie are brutal. Yeah, I was sitting there like, oh, oh, God. Oh, what is happening? Very jarring. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I mean, effective. And that's the thing is like when Eastwood uses violence in this movie, it is incredibly effective because it accomplishes the purposes that it sets out to accomplish. Violence is never glorified in this movie. Killing is never glorified in this movie. And th- I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is the framing of this movie is, you know, this prostitute has been attacked. No one will come to their defense. The sheriff is kind of covering, not covering up, but OK with what happened. And not seeking real justice. And so they put out a call to anyone who will come kill these two cowboys who who mutilated one of their own. And. It gets to the point where the the movie's asking. We've seen this guy do this thing. We as you know, viewers of movies who like watching people get killed, we should like watching this guy get killed. He's getting his comeuppance. He did something terrible. And yet. When he gets killed, it happens when he's sitting in an outhouse, like, you know, taking a dump. Like, honestly, it's like a, it's a major plot point that the person who kills him, it's his first time killing somebody. And it breaks him inside because he realizes I killed a guy and I didn't even give him any dignity when I did it. And, and I think yeah. that, like, for a movie like this from a person like Clint Eastwood to ask the question, does anyone really deserve to be shot down like this, even if you're taking their worst action into consideration, like yeah. it, it's an unexpected place for someone like Clint Eastwood to go. And yet it's a theme that he's been mining throughout the remainder of his career. And I think we'll see it in the following films that we're going to watch in this little miniseries, too.
0: Yeah. And then you get to Million Dollar Baby and
1: he's just, he's just smothering people. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you think I, I of think... Like, like, think about, you know, if we take the, the concept of violence, right, it could be physical violence in terms of abuse. It could be yeah, you know, shooting people. It could be emotional violence. Uh, Million Dollar Baby. This movie actually really helped me reframe Million Dollar Baby a little bit because it made a lot more sense when you think about how Eastwood's entire M.O. from this point on as a director is the effects of violence upon people's lives. And Million mm. Dollar Baby, like. It's a movie yeah. about how someone is just a brutal boxer. And then when you see the consequences of that violence inflicted upon her and you see her in this vulnerable and broken state, it's kind of the exact same thing that you're seeing in Unforgiven, yeah. just a, a different genre.
0: Well, and, and not just the the violence that she endured as a boxer, because like a big point of that movie was that she didn't start boxing till she was way too old to mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. It's the violence upon her soul that her childhood with the terrible family. And if I I remember correctly, she has like some bad boyfriends and bad jobs. And, you know, the violence of living life had led to this place where the violence of boxing was the only answer for her. And then that gets taken away from her and all of her freedom gets taken away. And it's like, what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. I think that the line that that Eastwood gives in Unforgiven you know, after the Schofield kid gets his kill and he he admits, you know, to him, hey, like, that was actually my first kill. And Clint just calmly, coldly, almost a calculatedly gives this line where he's like, you take everything the man had and everything the man ever would have had. Yeah. And that's it. Yep. That, like, period. End of sentence. Nothing more. And, like, as he delivers it, you can tell that he has no personal like it's almost as if he's realizing it as a character for the very first time. Mm. And there's a depth to that statement. Like, can you could you take some everything that a man ever had and everything they ever would have had mm-hmm. in a moment?
1: Yeah, there's something about I, I, I disagree that it's the first time he's thinking about it, because I think that's his whole character. His whole character is. I am suppressing and trying to get past these horrible things that I've done that I will never forget. And a major point of this film is, you know, his wife has died and his wife was the one that really reformed him that, you know, brought him to religious faith that got him to quit drinking. And a major point in the movie is when he reaches over and picks up the bottle of whiskey for the first time, mm. you're like, oh, gosh, like this is he's embracing it now. And, mm-hmm. and there's such that scene with the Schofield kid after Schofield kills uh you know one of the two cowboys and clint eastwood is watching the horizon to make sure they haven't been followed and everything has really come to a head this kid is like crying and he's chugging whiskey and clint's almost coaching him through it and it's like the saddest thing you've ever seen because he's been trying to Mm -hmm. avoid it for himself and to that point he's he has kind of still successfully avoided it for himself and he's watching this kid like have all these emotions spilling out of him and he just says take a drink kid like the only way to suppress this is to stay drunk and he says it himself the the kid asks him like you know what do you remember about that time in your life when you were killing people and he's like i don't remember any of it i was drunk most of the time because Mm -hmm. that's the only way to deal with these horrible things that he's done it's like brad i I mean i'm making this sound like a, a a profoundly sad movie and in a lot of ways it is but I don't want to take away from the fact that at the end of the day, this is still an incredibly well acted and incredibly well made, well paced and entertaining movie that still has this layer of really deep philosophical questions to it. Yeah, I, I do think that in that
0: scene with the Schofield kid, he would have been. Like rolling on the floor, pissing his pants drunk Mm -hmm. for however
1: much whiskey he
0: was drinking. I was sitting there going, damn, son, (laughs) he put it
1: away. I think that scene has my favorite line in the whole movie, though. And, you know, the kid is trying to talk himself into being justified in what he did, knowing that he never will. And, you know, he says, yeah, I finally I finally got my first kill. I shot him three times. And he's like talking about how the guy was like on the toilet. Right. And he starts crying again. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well. You know, I guess I guess he had it coming. And Clint just says, we've all got it coming. And it's like, that's the moment where you're like, Okay, I I get the thesis of this movie. Now, the thesis of this movie is nobody deserves this under any circumstances. And yet this is like what we glorify when we when we tell these stories. Yeah. I mean,
0: when you take that line and you pair it up with the final line that Clint gives to Gene Hackman, we haven't talked about yet, but we need to. Yeah. But he says to it, you know, Gene Hackman is like, I don't deserve this. I was building a house. And Clint just looks at him and goes, deserves got nothing to do with it. (laughs) It's just it's so brutal, but so honest. Like, Clint doesn't care if he deserves this or not. It's going to happen.
1: I just love this whole subgenre of movies. I mean, this movie has a a bunch of subgenres it fits into, but you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, the the new John Wick movie came out and John Wick falls into this trope again, too, of like, just when I got out, they pull me back in kind of yeah. A thing. <laughs> yeah. But in this movie, you really get the sense of the tragedy that it is that the man has to take on the, the mantle of the angel of death again. Right. Like mm-hmm. when he goes into that saloon at the end of the movie and he kills everybody in there, it is not a heroic thing. And you you may, as an audience member, still feel vindicated because he's avenging the death of his friend. But even as he's delivering these kind of classic, cool and cold Clint Eastwood lines, you're realizing that he's, he's embracing in a way like his destiny is to never be able to shake this image of the angel of death. And in order to Mm -hmm. move on from it, he has to become it again. It's so much more tragic than when you watch a movie like a John wick or, you know, any of those movies, like, because there is no valorization there,
0: yeah, he he is I, I think Angel of Death is the right description. And when you look at how everybody responds to his entrance into the bar, where you know, Gene Hackman is trying to put together a posse to go find them, and he just shows up in their saloon, ready to kill them all mm-hmm. the the reaction that they give is impeccably just. Awesome because they, they're they completely awestruck and terrified. And it just fits.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, man. We've gone pretty long talking about like the philosophy of this movie. Do you think we should hit pause here and come back and talk performances, or do you want to hit a couple and then go to break?
0: Let's let's talk about a few of the minor roles and then afterwards I want to get into Hackman, Eastwood, uh, you know, Freeman, and you know the big guys. Sure. All right. Who do you want to start with? I'm curious what you think about the uh, ladies of the night, the
1: billiards ladies, if you will. I feel like if there's any characters in this movie that are underwritten, it's them like they just they're there to be scared and they're there to spout some exposition every once in a while. Uh, I did really love oh, what's her name? Uh, Frances Fisher in this movie mm-hmm. as kind yep. of like, you know, the head prostitute. I don't know if you, if there's a hierarchy of prostitutes, but she seems the, to the be the matron. Yes, the matron, Bob. the matron. Sure, uh, because I just saw her again a few months ago when I went to the theater and rewatched Titanic. So Rose's she, mom she was at, she was at the theater. She was. She was like, that's you... me. I'm Rose's mom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Francis Fisher, what are you doing here? (laughs) What are you doing in Fairlawn, Ohio? (laughs) But yeah, I just I mean, I'm only used to seeing her as Rose's mom. She's not an actress Mm -hmm. that I've seen in a lot of things, even though she's been in a ton of projects. But for her to be a pretty substantial role in two best picture winning films that are considered, you know, among the top 100 American movies ever made, you know, in a five year span. Like that's a pretty nice little feather in your cap.
0: Yeah, I no, I would say so. I think for me, the girl who who plays the prostitute who got cut up, mm-hmm. I think that they give her just enough lines, and she takes them and and uses her facial features to really enhance the small bits that she gets. I just think that she makes an impact where she sees the world. In a much grayer tone than a lot of the other characters mm. that she sees the goodness of the younger cowboy who didn't really have anything to do with the fight. And she sees the goodness in William Money in the the way he carries himself, even though nobody else really does. Mm-hmm. And I, I I wish that she had a little bit more screen time because I think they could have developed her and her relationships a little more.
1: But I, I liked her a lot. Yeah, that actress's name is Anna Thompson. I, I'm with you, man. I thought she was really, really good. I don't know if this character is small enough to fit into your small characters category, Brad. But can we talk about James Woolvet as the Schofield kid for a minute? Mm. He is like the most underplayed.
0: Like, <laughs> like he just takes the
1: role. So subtle. And like, yeah, subtle. Thank that's, you. That's I, I was
0: searching. <laughs>
1: All right, so I have I have thoughts on him because the scene with Eastwood where he's breaking down drinking whiskey is maybe the best scene in the whole movie and it's the best scene in the whole movie because both actors are like on their A game. It's one of the, it's one of my favorite Clint Eastwood scenes I've ever seen. But mm-hmm. that kid brings the goods in that scene. Yeah, he really does. The problem is, you know, his character is supposed to be over the top and a little too juvenile and a little too green and naive. And even then, I feel like he does that and he does it in a very annoying way, which which is like right in line with how Morgan Freeman reacts to him the whole movie. But I still don't know if I think that he's like a very good actor, Brad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The entire time I was like, he feels like if you told like a college theater major to play a really hyperactive, imaginary imaginative you know kid who is idolizing violence Mm -hmm. like go play that Mm -hmm. and they he just plays it up way too much throughout the entire film I, I don't know man it's hard because I texted you this earlier it's almost like I think he did everything that Clint Eastwood asked him to do so I it's hard to say like oh bad performance but it just wasn't good. <laughs> and I don't know if that's fair to him or not, but
1: that's yeah. kind of how I landed on. Him. It's just so weird because usually when we see a performance like that, it's consistent throughout the movie. And then you've got this one scene where it's like, oh, this guy could have been nominated yeah. for an Academy Award. You know? Yeah, that's true. It's almost like he was, you know, like when you're taking a class and you're like sitting in the D range and your teacher's like, hey you really got to nail this final or you're like in danger of failing. And he's like, all right, cool. And he studies all night. And then he comes in for this one scene and he's like, boom, B minus for the course because of the way it washed out. So (laughs) no, that's honestly a really, really good metaphor. (laughs) All right, man. Anybody else you want to talk about before we go to break? Uh, Can we talk about my boy Dumbledore? Mm. Richard Harris,
0: dude, I, it like took me a solid five minutes but there were just a few specific like phrases and, and and the way he delivered lines that I was like wait a second is that freaking albus
1: dumbledore just <laughs> <laughs> my ears deceive me you know it made me really sad to see uh How much he had like physically degraded by the time you got to Harry Potter, because, you know, Mm -hmm. here he's like, I think he's like 60, 62 when this movie comes out and everyone in this movie is a little bit older. That's the point of the film. So you think like, okay, 10 more years, like he's 72. He's going to be maybe slowing down just a little bit. The man has lived. He's lived very hard and, you know, he dies in 2002 from all the complications of his his Mm -hmm. alcohol and everything else. And so. I'm only used to seeing him at like his most frail in Chamber of <laughs> Secrets and then seeing yeah. him here only a decade earlier. And he is so much more athletic and, you know, just like got his wits about him a little bit. Uh, it's it's kind of shocking for someone who's only used to seeing him in Harry Potter. Yeah. What what did you think about him here? I thought he was good. I thought that his character, again, might be a little underwritten because his character is kind of just a plot device to get Beauchamp, the biographer, in front of uh little bill and he's like the first example of somebody having their mythology come crashing down around them yeah. so it's a really good like academic <laughs> example of what the movie's trying to do but then his character gets put you know uh in a buggy and escorted out of town and you don't hear from him again and it's, it's kind of yeah. like well i'm glad we got richard harris to come do this movie but i feel like you could have gotten 50 people to come do that character. I don't know that there was anything specific to Richard Harris that made that character any more or less memorable.
0: Yeah, I I think for me, his whole the whole purpose of his character felt like a, you know, another person being demythologized. But B, it was to set up Gene Hackman as this unbeatable titan of you know, law and defense of the town mm-hmm. and, you know, his ability to defeat this incredible man was, you know, that's kind of what he was there for. I thought he was fine. I, I thought he turned into good performance. Honestly, I-, I think my favorite plot device that Eastwood uses as a director is the writer Beauchamp. If only for the fact that he kind of jumps from mythology to mythology. He's like, yeah, I'm going to write this thing on the Duke of uh, the Duke of Death. I think they call mm-hmm, it, they call him, mm-hmm. you know, and then, oh, he's kind of actually not that great. So I'm going to write it on this incredible sheriff who is, you know, defending the townspeople and rules with an iron fist. And, you know, I'm going to write this thing. Oh, he got killed, too. Well, I, I guess I'm going to follow this new guy, this William Money. You know, he's a he's a legend. He's all these things. And I I love how Eastwood shows if if he only understood that if you actually wanted to follow and mythologize these evil, evil men, you would die Mm. like like that's the end of the story for Beauchamp. He can either try to follow William Money and get killed by him or run run away and like run as far and as fast as he can. From
1: what you termed, Bob, the angel of death. Right. Well, and that's a great thing about his character, too, is and Saul Rubinek plays him really, really well, because I can't tell how savvy his character is, if he's naive or if he's like in on it and just really cynical, Mm -hmm. because it seems like he is as swayed by the idea of mythologizing people, not just because it's successful business strategy, but because he really likes the idea of the myth uh, as much as anybody else is. And so like. You know, Clint Eastwood's telling him, like, hey, I know who the next person I'm going to kill is if you don't get out of here right now. And he finally takes off running. But I don't know if he realizes that the only reason that Gene Hackman keeps him around is so that Gene Hackman can inflate his own story. Like Mm -hmm. he's dictating him, you know, his own story so that he can get it out there that he is this big, bad person. And I honestly can't tell if Beauchamp knows he's being used that way or not. And I think that's honestly the best way to play that character.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's more of how we should have gotten the Schofield kid. Mm. Like, I I think that's what makes his performance so rocky for me is the fact that you have a similarly motivated character in Beauchamp. That's just played a lot, lot better. Mm -hmm.
1: All right, man, I think we're in a good spot to hit pause here. We've been talking about this benchmark all day so far. I'm excited to dive into it. What do you say we get to this whiskey? Let's get to it. All right, everybody,
0: today we are talking about Benchmark Top Floor. As I said at the top of the episode, this is an 86 proof whiskey coming out of the Buffalo Trace Distillery. And according to them, it is aged on the top floor of their warehouse and it ages comparatively more quickly because, and I'm quoting their website, heat rises. It sure does. So, uh, you know, who (laughs) knew?
1: I do love the like, I love the gimmick here, which is we're gonna bottle just the top floor because in theory, scientifically, heat rises and so it should evaporate more things out of this whiskey quicker, uh, causing it to expand and contract quicker, causing it to age quicker. I understand Mm -hmm. that, but what they're essentially saying is like, you, you're not going to sell something on being rapidly aged unless you're kind of implicitly admitting that this is not aged very long. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're not going <laughs> to be like, hey, this is Lagavulin 16, but we aged it on the top floor, so it's really like Lagavulin 28. You know what I mean? Like, Right. Which, you're, <laughs> there's a reason that they're doing it with the $15 benchmark here. This is a non-age-stated yeah, and- bourbon. So we're assuming that it is at least four years old, at least, you know, in the blend it is, but we don't really know how long it's been aged. And it sounds like they're trying to pass off some really young whiskey that might taste a little more matured, uh, but they know what they've got on their hands, I guess is what I'm saying age wise. Yeah, I was going to say it has been aged long enough to charge $15. (laughs) So uh, if that tells you what you need to know, then uh, here we are. So it's been a long time since we've had Benchmark. Episode one of Film and Whiskey was Benchmark. Ooh, Benchmark Good eight. Fellas. Good fellas. What an episode. What a film. What a picture. <laughs> what a moving picture. So it's really hard to compare. However, we will be drinking Benchmark here again in a couple of weeks. I will explain that as we go on in the episode. But for now, Brad, let's talk about Benchmark Top Floor. What are you picking up on the nose? For me, it's it gets
0: a little bit nutty at the front end. I almost like an almond shavings, mm. like like kind of like a sliced almond feel. Uh, and I say that because I, I actually I like almonds, but of all the nuts out there, they don't have a ton of flavor or nose to them. They're just kind of generically nutty. And that's kind of what I'm getting here. Uh, there's some vanilla going on. There's like hints of caramel. It's not overly sweet. Um, but uh, I'll be honest, man, there, there's not much to detract here. Like I, like
1: I like this nose. It's generically pleasant with a little bit of nuttiness. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a seven out of 10. This is not an overly grainy nose, although I am picking up a little bit of rye here, but where it smells young, Brad is kind of like every once in a while. I see this note in, uh, in bourbon nosings about, uh, green wood, which is basically just mm-hmm. like, you know, unaged wood. This does smell like almost like fresh cut lumber and it almost has that like slightly sour smell to it of like Hmm. brand new chopped down tree kind of a thing. And so like there's a little sour note on the nose for me that is just taking away slightly from the experience. I'm with you on the almond though. For me, it's more like an almond cake. Like I get like a pound cake with almond extract in it. But that sour wood note is making me think that it might carry through a little bit to the flavor. So I'm just going to give this a 6.5 on the nose. Yeah. And as
0: we get into the palate, uh, it it turns very oaky on the palate. And then, the, you know, there's a little bit of caramel. The vanilla turns almost into a like a bright cream soda. Um, it's almost got that, you know, uh, bubbly taste to it. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the the part that's hard is that it, it's like a little bit overly done toast. Like like kind of slightly burnt, a little bit carbony. Uh I'm coming down a little bit from the nose, but not too far. It's a decent tasting whiskey. I'll give it a six out of ten.
1: It's not a very sweet whiskey. And I think the first note that I got was that wood, like that unaged wood. And it almost coats your palate. It's kind of oily that way. Um And then you get that kind of classic Buffalo Trace spicy note to it. But I will say, like, not a bad whiskey. I just don't know. Like, I feel like this would go really well in a cocktail where you're adding some sweet elements to it. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't have that kind of classic round caramely bourbon note on its own. So if you like a spicier, bolder bourbon, I actually think that this flavor profile might be the way to go. As you know, Brad, I like my sweet bourbons, so mm-hmm. this is not like my preferred wheelhouse. But I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten on the flavor.
0: Oh wow, yeah. So on the fin, the finish, I think I'm gonna just cut it down the middle and give it a six and a half. Mm. Uh, it's short and sweet; doesn't last a long, long time. For me, it almost turned into a, a tiny hint of tobacco, um, and the vanilla really stuck through to the
1: end. Um, not nothing to write home about, but you know, solid. Yeah, I think that's this is where this kind of suffers, like the the wateriness of it really comes through at this point, even at like 90 proof. I wonder how much better this might be, but it's not unpleasant. And for an 86 proof whiskey that costs $15, I was expecting a worse finish than this. So it's kind of like, do I grade it objectively or do I grade it on the curve based on what I was thinking I would get? I think I'm with you. I'm going to give it a 6.5 on the finish here. Yeah, and, and as
0: far as balance goes, Bob, this is just like a really honest delivery through the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Like, the nose sets you up for the taste, which sets you up for the finish, and it doesn't have any really high highs or low lows. Uh, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on balance. Like, it, there's not enough complexity here for me to give it a higher score than that. You know, I, I think this is its its ceiling as far as scores go. But, yeah, man, like it's, it's fine. It's a well-balanced
1: $15 whiskey. Yeah, Brad, I think I'll also give it a 7. I was tempted to give it an even higher score than that. Uh, but I think for now I'll give it a 7 because I want to reward it even more on the value. Now, these have just recently started being sold in Ohio. I actually don't know if they're, like, statewide yet. We had to go to Kentucky to pick up these five bottles of Benchmark. Uh, which is just hilarious to say that we went to Kentucky to buy $15 whiskey. But, you know, <laughs> we do it for you, Philman Whiskey Nation. So in Ohio, Brad, what have they set the price for top floor at? Bob, it is $14.99. This is at least an 8 out of 10 on value. And now that they don't make I... like Heaven Hill Green Label anymore... I don't know what you can get for $15 that's better than this. Cause even like Evan Williams white label is at least 20 now. Yeah. Like I'm going to give it a nine out of 10 on value. Yeah. I'm I'm going to give it a nine and a half.
0: Bye. Bye. Like, I think this is an incredible value at $15. This is a whiskey that if you wanted to, you could sip neat. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to put it in a cocktail, that would be the best place for it. But like, there's a lot of people who are spending thirty to forty dollars on cocktail mixers, yep. and I would tell you any day of the week go buy some Top Four. Like it's got some flavor to it; it's got a little bit of spice, mm-hmm. and for being eighty-six proof, it doesn't come across as a low-proof whiskey. No, so I,
1: I like I don't know what better value you could get at fifteen dollars. There are very few eighty-six proof whiskeys. That I think would give a cocktail enough of a backbone to justify themselves. Like when I make cocktails, I use 100 proof bourbon. But I think that I could get away with this 86 proof because it has so much of that spice to it. And it would work really, really well. So, yeah, I'm going to give this a huge recommendation. It's a 36 out of 50 for me. Brad, what are you coming to? Bob, the world has come to order at last. I came to a 36 as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, look at us. Now, would you recommend trying or buying or both? (laughs) Honestly, I don't
0: think I'd recommend trying. I wouldn't either. Because, like, minimum, it's $3 a
1: pour, right? I
0: mean, like, Like, it's got to
1: be more. I don't think I've ever seen a whiskey for $3 a pour.
0: That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, let's call it five. That's already a third of the bottle. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, if you really wanted to. Buy a pour. <laughs> but if you want to be wise with your
1: money and steward it well, go buy a bottle. Is there a whiskey, Brad? And this is one of our one of our new questions we're going to ask each other. Mm. Is there a whiskey that you think would be a better pairing with Unforgiven? Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, I I guess I would say High
0: West, like, Like, you have to drink High West with with Western movies, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Like, you know, if you're going to watch a Western, you got to watch or you got to drink a Western whiskey.
1: Yeah, I think that, like, you know, the themes of the movie probably demand something a little more complex than this whiskey can offer. But this probably tastes pretty similar to whatever was in that bottle that that guy was consoling him with. So, yeah, it's two thumbs up on benchmark top floor for us. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Unforgiven? Let's get to it. All righty, Bob, that was benchmark
0: top floor. Whiskey that for $15. You are getting your bang for your buck. You are getting a bang for your buck. My real question is, do you think that uh the Schofield kid and Morgan Freeman were getting a bang for
1: their buck with all the freebies? <laughs> truly it was it was the benchmark value of <laughs> old west hookers <laughs> that is a very judgmental statement bob we we liked it we liked the benchmark i we did did you like the benchmark hookers in the movie <laughs> they seemed to they seemed to be enjoying <laughs> they, their freebies they did seem to enjoy it <laughs> bob i think it's time to get into
0: canada's favorite segment two facts and a falsehood
1: gonna try
0: to stump you to right. and what is wrong two facts and a falsehood
1: two facts and a falsehood this is where brad tries to stump me and my extensive movie knowledge he has gone through the annals of the imdb trivia page uh, mm. to, to, to find things that we're not sure are true but he has pulled out two facts from that page, and he has invented a third item that he's going to pass off as a fact. And the task ahead of me is to determine which one is the lie. Brad, I'm starting over. I'm zero for zero so far. I do not have a losing record yet. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, the score for this film
0: was created by Lenny Nehaus with the exception of the main theme, Claudia's song, which was composed by none other than Clint Eastwood himself. Clint. Fact number two, Clint Eastwood chose the name William Money based on a childhood bully he endured, stating there was something mean in that kid right from the start. Seemed to fit what I was looking for. Hmm. Fact number three, the boots that Clint Eastwood wore in Unforgiven are the same ones that he wore in Rawhide and are now a part of his private collection. In 2005, they were loaned to the Sergio Leone exhibit at the Gene Autry Museum of Western Heritage in Los Angeles, California. The Boots bookended Eastwood's
1: uh, Western career. Oh, nice. Uh, that sounds kind of true. <laughs> and I think one sounded pretty true. I don't know anything about two. They all sound plausible. I'll give you credit for that. Mm. Let's go. When I was listening to the main theme of this movie, I was wondering if Eastwood composed it. And so I watched the end credits long enough to see who composed the movie. And it clearly wasn't Eastwood, but it sounded like the kind of simplistic little melody that Eastwood likes to make the main themes of his movies because he started scoring his own movies after this. So I'm going to assume one is true. If it's not true, I think it was a huge inspiration on him musically. And I'm going to say that two is the falsehood just because I don't know anything about Clint Eastwood's childhood. So I'm going to lean towards that. <laughs> well, Bob, you are
0: starting off the year one and oh.
1: Hey!
0: Nailed it. You have not. You've it, not yet gotten good at lying. Give you a couple of weeks I, and you'll be right there. I'll be right on it. Bob, I actually really enjoyed uh, fact number three that. The boots he wore in Unforgiven are the same ones he wore in his very first acting job, Rawhide. That's incredible.
1: Right? I like, like that like... like I don't think that I will want to wear boots from my twenties when I'm in my sixties. Like <laughs> I want orthopedic not. boots at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you are not a you're not a BA William Money type then. Right. Well, all right. So I am 1-0 and on two facts and a falsehood. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Brad, as we segue back into talking about this movie, I do want to say that our big thing for this month is this. We're trying to grow this podcast. We want more and more people to hear about film and whiskey. And we want to encourage you, if this is your first time listening and you're enjoying it, or if you're a long-time listener and you just haven't taken the plunge yet, go to our website, filmwhiskey.com. That's filmwhiskey with an E. On the top of the homepage you'll see a button that says reviews. Leave us a review. It helps us so much in the algorithms on Spotify and on Apple Podcast. For you to just leave us a quick five-star review and write a couple sentences about us. You know what, honestly Brad, even if you just think we're a four-star podcast because surely we're no lower than a four-star podcast. Honestly review us. Leave us a review. On the platform of your choice by going to filmwhiskey.com and you will be entered into this month's giveaway. We're giving away copies of the new movie Scream 6, starring Courtney Cox and Jenna Ortega. We will choose a few winners at the end of the month from the people who leave us a review on filmwhiskey.com. So if you'd like a copy of Scream, I've heard really good things about it. Head over to filmwhiskey.com, leave us a review. Bob,
0: I want to know, this is my burning question for the week. How
1: long has Morgan Freeman been 67 years old? One of my favorite facts about Morgan Freeman is that in the 1970s, he was on a show called The Electric Company, which was a children's show. And it was kind of like a spinoff of Sesame Street, I think, but it was for okay. like <laughs> slightly older kids. <laughs> okay. And that was like one of his first big breaks as an actor. Uh huh. He looks 47 years old in The Electric Company. And then you get to, like, Unforgiven and Shawshank, and it's like, oh, this guy is already 60-something years old. And the thing is, I think now Morgan Freeman is in his early 80s, but the math doesn't add up because he's been 50 for, like, 76 years. hmm Yeah. I, I don't know how the man does it, but he just has looked the
0: same mm-hmm. for forever. Like, I saw a meme the other day that was, like – uh, it was, like, an AI-generated picture of – famous actors with like young them and older them did you see this <laughs> no and it's like it's like cheesy 90s family pictures where like old leonardo dicaprio is like standing with his hands on like titanic leo's shoulder right okay and there's a few of them it's like leo and a few other people and then it gets the morgan freeman in the bottom right and it's just the same morgan freeman <laughs> <laughs> as <laughs> As both of himself, and i I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's that's Morgan Freeman, and I feel like unforgiven Morgan Freeman
1: is his age in everything I've ever seen him mm-hmm. in. Let's talk about his performance a little bit because i I have thoughts on his performance. I don't feel like he is an important enough character in this movie and and they try to make him important enough. like he's clearly important to will money and that's his best buddy, right? But when he leaves towards the end of the movie, it's like, you know what's going to happen to him. And you f- you do feel his absence a little bit. And I almost feel like similar to what I do with him in Shawshank. And his performance in Shawshank, I think, is just better than in here because he's got a little bit more to chew on. But part of these Morgan Freeman roles from the early 90s are that he's like just slightly more naive or simple than the main character. Like, in Shawshank, Andy is a genius, and Red is constantly amazed at all these cool things Andy does. And in this movie, there's a little bit of, like, you know, they're on the same level, but he's still a little bit more reactionary. He's not as cool-headed as Will Money is. And I feel like when you start to see Morgan Freeman really come into his own in leading roles later on in the 90s and in the 2000s, I think we kind of realized what we missed a little bit, and I think they could have given him a couple more layers and some more meat to chew on in this movie than they did. He does a great job. I just I wonder if his character is a little bit simplistically written.
0: Yeah, I I think that was the big thing for me. I I also entered this for some reason thinking that he won best supporting actor in this film. Mm. And, you know, it turns out that was actually Gene Hackman, very well deserved. And so it almost made me struggle even more where I was like, man, how did he win a best act, you know, yeah, supporting yeah. actor for this? Because he just didn't have enough to do. And I, I I feel bad saying this, but I'm like, this is just a really forgettable Morgan Freeman performance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I and I hate to say that because he's, you know, incredible. He
1: needs to narrate everybody's lives. <laughs> I like him a lot in this movie, but you're right. It feels he feels less consequential than he should.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. He just kind of shows up and basically calls, you know, money out on like we're old now and things have changed and it's not the same anymore. And Clint Eastwood just keeps going like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yep. We, we've changed. And then when it comes down to it, he can't shoot the cowboy. And he he's you know developed a conscience, and the guy who supposedly developed a conscience, in Cle- Clint Eastwood kills him,
1: mm-hmm. and so I, his character just feels a little confusing to me. I think. Hmm. All right, let's talk a little bit about. Gene Hackman, who does win Best Supporting Actor, and I'm with you, man. I thought for the longest time Morgan Freeman won an Oscar for this movie. It's a, it's like a Mandela effect thing for me. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it, but it's Gene Hackman, and that makes a lot more sense because Gene Hackman's really, really good in this movie. This is, I think, only our second Gene Hackman movie. Surprisingly, I was going to say we have not
0: seen him very much. What was the other movie, Bob? uh, The Royal Tenenbaums. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could not get. More different performances. <laughs> really? Like, he's so good here, though. And I think the thing that, that bothers me when I'm reading about this movie is that in every summary of the movie, and I get that, like, you know, it's, it's always reductionistic to summarize a movie, but they talk about how callous and how evil he is. And he is certainly the most ruthless and the least moral person in this movie but you also understand his point of view you like mm-hmm. if you believe that he actually does like being a lawman and i think that's kind of what this whole theory rests on then you understand the extent that he goes to impose his will on that town and to uphold what he views as the law he's not he's not a morally good person and he certainly has a very perverted and twisted idea of what the law is but he falls right in line with will money and i think that You know, when you're talking about these two foils in each other of Will Money and Little Bill, like it's not a mistake and it's not an accident that it's Will and Bill. They are in some ways like the opposite of each other, but they're the mirror image of each other in a lot of ways as well. And I think Hackman really plays that brilliantly.
0: Yeah, he feels like the law version of William Money in his prime. Mm -hmm. Right. If William Money is the evil destructive force. He is the iron fist that keeps everybody safe at the expense of their own freedom. And so you understand that in a world where there are William monies, there there will necessarily be little bills. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, this whole movie is basically saying the world is moving on from both of those types of people. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the the final text we get basically says after this one final desperate act of violence, money moves his kids to San Francisco and opens up a dry goods store. And yeah. like, that was that. He washes his hands of it. And so you 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 realize that Bill is there as a necessity because of people like money. But as people like money
1: disappear, people like little Bill need to b- disappear too. Mm-hmm. All right, man, that brings us to Eastwood. I can't believe that we've gone like, I don't know, 50 minutes without talking about Clint Eastwood's performance. I think that when we did Million Dollar Baby, I commented and this was like, what, four years ago now, Brad. So I don't remember, mm-hmm. but I commented on how I thought it was maybe the best Eastwood performance. And then I watched this and I was like, OK, never mind. Like this. he, he <laughs> He's incredible. And he's always been an underrated actor because. You know, he's the kind of guy that's like De Niro, where if you can do the face, you can mimic him a little bit. Mm -hmm. But he's so much more than just doing the Clint Eastwood face. And for me, it was two scenes. It was the one that we've already talked about where he's you know talking with Schofield about the man he just killed. But then it's also the scene where he comes down with the really bad fever and he's having those like hallucinations by the campfire. Mm -hmm. And it's because that is the most ridiculous and ludicrous dialogue that anyone in this movie has to deliver. And the fact that he does it convincingly, mm-hmm. like, I'm not even joking. I think that's actually a really, <laughs> a really huge feat that he pulls off just to make that scene work. He is such a good actor in this movie, Brad. Yeah. And
0: even like the eminently gif scene where he is like crawling out of the bar.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like the camera just won't move away from the agony that he's in, from the the fever, from the rain and the beating that he just received. Like, I think that Eastwood is incredible in this movie. And I like I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't win best actor this year. Like, you know, I know that Unforgiven wins four other Oscars, but man, oh man, was Eastwood just incredible in this film. And like you've said multiple times, the scene between him and the Schofield kid is heart-wrenching. Yeah. And Eastwood just gives a beautifully subtle performance at just the right time to really
1: kick this movie up a notch. All right, Brad. I don't really have too much more to say because we went so deep on the themes in the first half. Like, what else about this movie do you want to get off your chest before we start moving into final scores here? Uh, you know, Bob, I feel pretty confident. Like we nailed it. We knocked this out of the park. <laughs> 10 out of 10 on our analysis. (laughs) Well, that means that it's time for our final segment of the day, which is called Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode. So thanks for listening to the film and whiskey show. Let's pair another film with this one. Even if it's struggle, it's the final segment of the day. Now let's make it a double. This is where Brad and I pick a film to match up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, when I think about making this a double, there are so many directions I can go because I literally just made a list of movies that kind of fall into this genre of like the angel of death or like the guy who gets reluctantly pulled back in. There are so many movies that are influenced by this and that influenced this movie. Like I I thought about Heat, the movie that we just did at the end of last season. Like, you know, it kind of reminds me of after Die Hard came out, Hollywood did this thing for like the next 10 years where they were just like die hard on a boat and they called it this die hard on a bus. Mm-hmm. And it was speed with Keanu Reeves like it was just die hard on a blank. And I think that Unforgiven is like sneakily just as influential because it's Unforgiven on a blank. Uh, heat is Unforgiven with the mob and I thought about that movie, The Wrestler, that Darren Aronofsky did and, and the the way that that movie is about the effects of violence on somebody's life. And that movie with Brendan Fraser that just came out, The Whale, like uh, Logan, the superhero movie, like that's a per- mm-hmm. that's unforgiven with superheroes. Yeah. The movie that I think I would pair this up with the most and that I lost the most respect for <laughs> on this rewatch is a movie <laughs> called Road to Perdition. It's a Tom Hanks movie uh, directed by Sam Mendes, and it comes out in 2002, and it is one of the most gorgeously shot movies I've ever seen. And I did not realize until today how it is just – it's just a complete ripoff of Unforgiven. It's based on a graphic (laughs) novel, so I can't, like, totally knock the movie for it. But even just, like, having this climactic shootout in the rain at the end of the movie and the way that it's all about, like – how violence affects a man's soul and the kind of men we are as a result of what we've done. Like I think road to perdition is the perfect pairing to go with this movie.
0: Yeah. I think that I am going to go with the departed. Hmm. I think that the departed gives you such a bleak look at policing and criminal activity and how it's almost impossible to tell the good guys from the bad guys that just fits with what you have here in Unforgiven. Like, is William Money a good man? Is he a bad man? Is, is Gene Hackman's character a, a good person or a bad person? There's just so much ambiguity when it comes to violence. I, I think that Scorsese kind of captures that in The Departed and, and, you know, 12 years after this one. All
1: right. So there you have it. I'm going with Road to Perdition. Brad's going with The Departed. Well, hey, before we get out of here today, we do want to say that we're starting a really cool project over on our Patreon. So we went back and listened to the episodes that we did back in season one, Brad. And, uh, you know, if we can be frank with our listeners, they don't sound that great. You know, we were we were little baby podcasters and we didn't really have very good microphones back then. And we kind of started to think, hey, we should re review these like it's time for us to revisit this now that we've done almost 200 films on this podcast. And so we're going to start going through one by one the films from season one and redoing them in a completely new format. Like we are not just revamping what we did in season one. We're, we're reevaluating them and we're going to be releasing those to our patrons. So if in addition to all the other Patreon exclusive content we give out, if you would like to hear these full-length episodes where we revisit our films from season one, which we will be starting in just a few weeks here with Million Dollar Baby to go along with the Clint Eastwood theme, you can find us on Patreon.com/slash filmwhiskey, where you can support us at three different tiers: a three, a five, and a seven dollar a month tier. We'd love to have you join the community tons of perks like a special discord server. In addition to all these great bonus episodes, that's patreon.com slash film whiskey. Brad, it's time for us to give our final scores on this movie. If you're new to the podcast, we give final scores out of 10. We can give half points, but we don't get any more granular than that. Brad, I think I'm kind of tempted to give this movie a 10 because of its cultural impact because of, I mean, how well it holds up and the questions that it, it asks and doesn't answer. It has that great ambigu- like ambiguity to it that I love in movies like Gone Baby Gone. I will say the first like half hour d- still doesn't really work for me that well. It's it's mm-hmm. a little stilted and it's a little cheesy and you know obviously it's because they're trying to set up this kind of idyllic life that he has with where he's going. But it really isn't until about the 45-minute mark where you get that first scene of English Bob and Beauchamp in the jail with Gene Hackman that I think the movie really starts to click for me. And from there on out, it's like a perfect movie. But because of that, I'm going to ding it just a little bit. I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10.
0: Yeah, I think I'm I'm pretty close to you, Bob. I think this is a 9 out of 10 movie. I, I think that Eastwood, as a director... Is probably at his best here, but you can tell that there's just enough slow moments. And I think that there's just enough acting issues here that keep it from being like a top tier movie that we've reviewed on this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's a nine out of 10. It's still a really, really great watch.
1: I think if you're a fan of of classic Westerns, you know, I said at the beginning of the episode, if you hate Westerns, you might like this. But it is so cool to see the influence of movies like High Noon on this, you know, at the end of the movie where he's just yelling at the, everyone in the town. Like, it's just it's so similar to High Noon. There's so much of the searchers in this, too, about like the guy who's not a good guy and is carrying the baggage of it with him wherever mm-hmm. he goes. There's a lot of the man who shot Liberty Valance, which is all about myth making and the legends that we tell ourselves. Like, it's just, it, it, I think what it does so well, Brad, is it fits in perfectly with the rich tradition of the Hollywood Western at the same time that it is calling them all into question. It doesn't feel like it's disrespecting them, it just feels like it's presenting the other side of the coin. And I think that's why I love it so much.
0: Yeah. The, the homage to the Western is so clear throughout. But you're right. The questions it's asking about what the effects are. Of a life lived like that are, are really real and honest and raw. And I, yeah, Eastwood is an incredible actor and director here. And as always, if you want to join the conversation on our social medias, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or the cesspool that is called Twitter at FilmWhiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. Uh, Discord is an incredible place for communities of like minded individuals to talk about the things that they love. So join our Film and Whiskey Discord. You can find a link to it at the end of every
1: single one of our show notes. Next week, we're going to continue rolling along with the Clint Eastwood train as we watch 2003's Mystic River. So join us for that one. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.